Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mind for Life podcast. My name is Jeff Bogazic, and I am your host. And today we have a very special guest with us. It is Andrew McLuhan, and he's going to be talking about understanding media. Just a quick brief intro to Andrew. Andrew is a grandson of Marshall McLuhan, who is the noted Canadian professor from the University of Toronto. He was a pioneer in the field of media and communication studies. Andrew's father was Eric McLuhan, Marshall's eldest son. And Eric worked with Marshall from the mid-1960s until Marshall died in 1980. And so Eric and Marshall McLuhan, a rich intellectual heritage when it comes to media studies. Uh, They have done work on understanding media, which was Marshall McLuhan's major work. Eric uh, also worked with his father on the laws of media, the new science, Um, media and formal cause and theories of communications. And so uh, theories of communication, excuse me. It's a great conversation with Andrew, who is the director of the McLuhan Institute, which was created in 2017 to continue the work begun by Marshall McLuhan and Eric McLuhan in exploring and understanding culture and technology. It's a great discussion. I had an enjoyable time speaking with Andrew, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Great. Well, I appreciate you coming on and joining me for the podcast to talk about whatever it is that we'll talk about today. Okay, my pleasure. (laughs) Yeah, no, great to great to have you. Um, Maybe it might be good just to get started. Um, you know, to me, I'm going to say it, you know, you've got a um, mystique, if I can use that term about you, you know, uh, just simply because of your, you know, your heritage and, you know, your involvement uh, with the McLuhan Institute and your grandfather, your father, you know, I've been in the um, media ecology area for several years now. And of course, the the name McLuhan is uh, very prominent there. So, you know, now you're a real person. You're not just a superhero, you know, up on the screen or whatever. But I think it would be good, you know, maybe for our audience to just uh, talk a little bit about yourself, share a little bit about, uh, you know, who you are. So somebody that maybe doesn't know you much can get a little oriented and, uh, you know, a little bit about your family and stuff would be a great intro, I think. Sure. Um, well, thank you for having me on uh, to talk today. Um, apparently, I have no problem. I realized earlier I do, I do a lot of podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's amazing that people still want to talk to me because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've said it all before, and right. uh, the trick now is just to try and remember what I said before and try to say it maybe a little bit differently. I don't know. Okay. Uh, um, and then, then I started feeling, uh, you know, not a little bit narcissistic because, wow, I really do spend a lot of time talking about myself. I mean, um, uh, among the things that I do, I teach a course, um, on understanding media, uh, Marsha McLuhan's 1964 book. This, this is my here copy here. You can see, look at that. Well-worn. 
well and you can see all the the pages of of annotation like right basically go through and make notes and just read it and read from my notes and yeah it's all the stories that i've heard growing up and uh i'm sitting here there we go yeah that one is a different uh different yeah. cover so i've got i've got that one too oh look, look at that yeah Lapham. great that's, uh, i think the 96 and yeah, that's it look at that yeah uh i i've got i've got lots of different i don't have them in front of me i've got a couple of them that um were marshall and eric McLuhan's copies that okay. they used when they were they were doing a project called umr mm -hmm. uh, which was their shorthand for understanding media revised mm -hmm. which if you've read the introduction to laws of media mm -hmm. uh, which my father wrote he talks about how um marshall was approached by the publisher to do a 10th anniversary edition of understanding media mm -hmm. um and uh marshall used the opportunity to address one of the core criticisms of that text which was that that's great but it's not scientific right um so he thought that was actually interesting and a challenge and you know it's funny how many times work gets done because people are irritated or pissed off enough <laughs> <laughs> no doubt especially i think in academic circles uh of which i'm only adjacent to academic circles but um the book my dad put it in 2011 media and formal cause was a result of him getting irritated enough about people throwing the term formal cause around right. that he got to the bottom of it, at least from the McLuhan side of things. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so he, Marshall and Eric sat down to discover if there were any laws of media, you know, what is a scientific statement? Are there any constants in human innovation and technology? And to do that, they went through understanding media. They each had a copy and mm -hmm. made notes as they went along. And I've got these two copies, um, which is pretty amazing. With all the notes. Yeah, oh yeah. Everything that they said, yeah. So the, those, them going through those books and annotating and making notes was the precursor to, precursor to the laws of media that they wrote together. I believe yeah. I actually did a review of that book, or maybe not. I did a review of one of your dad's books for explorations in media ecology um and it gave like uh the book was just you know there was a lot of the 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 tetrad i believe it is right with like different examples of it all the way through maybe this one yes i believe that's correct that is the one i believe i did yeah so it was just super interesting so um so maybe give everybody yeah, a little bit of background so everybody knows who your grandfather sure. was, who your dad was. Obviously, uh, your grandfather, you know, a, a leading pioneer in some areas in this area of research when it comes to media. So it would be good to start there. Yeah, um, Marshall McLuhan was my grandfather. Uh, he was an English teacher who stumbled into media studies. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which is kind of funny, uh, but when you look back on it, it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, it was it was sort of the start of the streak of genius of his that he he studied English literature and literary criticism in Cambridge in the 30s, Cambridge University. And um, the particular type of criticism that he learned uh, focused the structure and the form over the content. Mm -hmm. and 
he basically thought, well, what if I just took these techniques and turned them on popular culture and on technology? Mm -hmm. you know, what would happen then? Um, and he just kind of ran with that. And he discovered that, you know, when you study one technology, um, back to the laws of media idea, um, you study all of them because all human innovation have things in common necessary right. human innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, so he kind of made a career out of himself that way. Uh, media studies was really his side hustle. He was a English teacher his whole career, mm -hmm. which is fun. Uh, and my father, uh, my dad was born in St. Louis in Missouri in the okay. 40s. And uh, so he was an American as well as a Canadian citizen. Right. Um, and he was the eldest of six children and really raised to be, um, you know, the professor's son, the next marshal. Right. right. Classical education. Mm -hmm. He. It seems like he tried to get away with it. He ran off and joined the army, uh, sorry, the air force. Right. Uh, rather than getting drafted into the army, he joined the mm -hmm. air force. Uh, and did a stint at uh, in the states, um, but uh, he ended up coming back and working with his dad in the mid '60s, and worked with Marshall uh, for the rest of Marshall's life up until 1980. Okay, and you know went the whole academic route, got his bachelor's, his master's, a PhD, ended up getting an honorary degree or two. I'm basically mm -hmm. for an honorary degree at this point. <laughs> But um, yeah, when Marshall died in 1980, um, my dad had been working with him, but it was unexpected. He was he was 69 years old, and that wasn't right. wasn't really very old. Mm -hmm. um, and he was expected to recover. He'd had a massive stroke and couldn't talk for the last year plus of his life. Mm -hmm. um, so my dad was left a little without a plan. You know, there was no succession or anything like that. Right. Uh, my dad had been working at Marshall's side very closely. He was really his closest collaborator, mm -hmm. uh, intellectual equal, although he would never admit it. Um, he did some really impressive things. And, um, you know, for myself, uh, I was fortunately uh, not raised to be the next Marshall or Eric. Right. Do you <laughs> have uh, do you have brothers or sisters? Yeah, I'm I'm the youngest of three okay. I have two sisters. Uh, they both live in California and mm -hmm. uh, are in advertising and whatever else, uh, marketing and um, not really. I think they they're glad that I'm interested in this because it relieves them of the responsibility. They're not right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and it's it's funny, you know. I I grew up so I was kind of raised to find my own way. Um, I ended up finishing high school barely, a little bit late. Um, and just doing my own thing. I was in a punk rock band and I've been a poet since I could remember. And that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that interested me. You know, I, I tried to read McLuhan. I tried to read actually that copy of Understanding Media, mm -hmm. my first copy. And when I tried to read it at 16, it just went right over my head. Right. Uh, but I, I read it because you grow up and um, you realize, that, you know, it's made very plain that your grandfather wasn't like other people's grandfathers. Right. And. Uh, people have questions for you and it's like well you know read a book yeah did you uh, how was that was there like did you feel 
you know, like a pressure, you know, like, oh my gosh, your grandfather's Marshall McLuhan, you know, your dad's Eric McLuhan, you're coming through this intellectual lineage, you know, what was that like growing up like that? It was, it was weird, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and sure there was a bit of pressure, um, but it was, it wasn't anything that um, uh, was coming from inside the family. It was coming yeah. from before. Sure. Um, and I, uh, it wasn't strong enough to really, um, mean very much to me, except right. like I said, so I, I tried to read understanding media. It didn't do very much for me. I did my own thing. Uh, later in my twenties, I tried to get back into it. I got more curious, um, and it made a little more sense, but mm -hmm. no, not enough to really <laughs> make a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't until, uh, I was in my thirties actually. And, um, my dad uh, sometimes gave speeches uh, around the world at universities or whatever. And mm -hmm. my mom would normally go with him because he was a diabetic and sometimes would have problems in that area. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, he'd gotten an invitation to speak in Poland. Um, and my mom didn't find that too appealing. No. <laughs> you know, Italy, France, my mom's there. Poland, do you want to go, Andrew? So, uh, so I went and I found, um, uh, I think for the first time in my life that, uh, what he said made sense mm -hmm. and this was new, you know, this was a new thing. And I don't know if you've ever had this, but you know, when, when you're listening to something that sounds like gibberish and then it, it clicks and it makes sense, it's, it's a seductive thing, right? you know, an epiphany. It's, it's like a yeah. powerful thing. And it makes you want more. So um, that was kind of, that was it for me. And mm -hmm. I became, I, I, I never worked with my dad the same way he worked with his dad. Um, I, I would never try to claim that. Um, I'm not an academic. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think possibly I have something value to contribute just because I'm an outsider. Mm -hmm. I really feel without being, you know, I don't think I'm being falsely modest but i think if i can understand this stuff anybody can right you know, a little work because i'm not specially trained in it i just i grew up around it and um i put some effort into it and mm -hmm. it's paid off a bit you know yeah um, yeah I, I would agree with you you know you, the there is a small uh academic circle of people that get into you know, and they, they start to talk about it and they use the jargon and, you know, you can get into that area. But like, I think what your grandfather uh, and even your dad really brought to light is just a perspective that really should be understood by everybody. I And I think that that's something that so I think as academics, sometimes there's difficulty in translating that into the language where people can understand especially, you know, and I just said this, we were at the, um, I was out at the media, uh, there was the Media Ecology Association, yeah. the board meeting, it was last week. And I just said, you know, I feel like media ecology has so much to say to the broader society uh, about what's going on and the work of your grandfather, the work of your father, the work of Neil Postman, and all of those scholars that are re had really super insight and were prophesying almost 
years ago about where we are now. And I, I don't feel oftentimes that we're doing a great job of that because it's, you know, it is limited to some academic circles. Sure. I mean, it's it's difficult. You know, Marshall received a lot of pushback from from doing exactly that, from reaching right. inside of academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, academia, while while it's a, a special and important place, it's a very it is a very small place. Right. Um, and it, it can be a bit of a, a closed system. Um, and then there's the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You know? And Marshall was trying to reach the rest of the world because, hey, the rest of the world is where people are are dealing with the effects of technologies, you mm-hmm. know, where the rubber hits the road. Um, but um, he he didn't win a lot of friends inside academia for that. Right. Um, and in his writing style, would you classify it as more populist? Because you said that there was criticisms that it was non-academic, right? Or, you know, so non-scientific, I think. Um, yeah. I do remember reading that introduction about, you know, that your father wrote. Um, but, I, you know, and, and it was really, I don't know, there was a style back in the 60s when he was writing, you know, it was that, you know, it was like avant-garde type of a style. And, you know, um, there's the there's the art scene and everything that was going on back then. So it was a unique time, right? Well, I mean, you don't, you don't write an academic textbook to get on the New York times bestsellers list. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, And this was, this was another criticism that understanding media faced It's like, well, this is a really awful textbook, Marshall. Mm -hmm. And Marshall was like, well, it's not a textbook guys, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like nothing about it is textbook. There are very few references, you know, there's no bibliography. Mm-hmm. It was it was written to be a, a popular book. Mm-hmm. Um, and the style, um, you know, because you can read Marshall's work from before and after Understanding Media was written. And he wrote to his audience. Mm-hmm. And if he was writing for a literary magazine, he was writing literary prose. If mm-hmm. he was writing for an academic publication, um it was proper for an academic like he could he could write the pants off a lot of people right if he wanted to mm-hmm. um, but a lot of his a lot of his stuff especially after understanding media wasn't written by him so much as dictated mm-hmm. and that was for the precise reason of getting out of the written uh barrier right. structure mm-hmm. um because uh, as he said very very early on um, we it was a post-literate society mm-hmm. you know so you're not going to reach people sending telegraph telegraph messages out there you know mm-hmm. and like you gotta you gotta reach people where they are and possibly the mea could think about that and how right. they might employ a similar strategy like is there an mea tiktok channel uh i mean i don't have a tiktok channel let's <laughs> but but you know what? But you know what I'm saying is like I know what you're saying. Like our, it does not. You know, so they've talked about uh, a podcast, an MEA podcast. I don't know. I know that uh, the General Semantics Institute of General Semantics is moving more into into that area of putting out content, reaching a broader audience. Um, so it was a, it was a point of discussion, you know, on um, 
what's, you know, what's the direction and, um, you know, the MEA is what it is and I love it. I mean, I would not be involved in what I'm doing now, I think, um, if it wasn't for my introduction to media ecology and my PhD work. So like, to me, it was like a light bulb turned on and it was like, to, to your point, an epiphany, like what, you know, and uh, the, one of our classes, maybe that's something that we could talk about was really on understanding media. That was one of the books that we had and the medium is the message. And it was just kind of like, you know, like all of a sudden you're presented with a perspective on the reality of the world around you. And it's like, wait a minute, what, you know, cause my whole life has been just about content and what's being said, as opposed to thinking about what's the structure of the form that's really saying that to you. And how is that really changing and, and limiting and providing avenues and aspects. And so that whole medium theory, I think is what someone else calls it, but maybe just talk a little bit about that. And, you know, I know that's something that you deal with in your class, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, um, when was the last time you read Understanding Media? Well, I don't know that I've read the entirety of it in recent times, but of course, go back often to certain chapters, uh, especially early on, you know, and going through, you know, I, I often reference uh, the psalm that Marshall talks about, you know, we create our gods and we become like them, you know, and but when he gets more into like, you know, the actual extensions and explaining some of the extensions, uh, that's been a bit. Yeah. You know, um, one thing I so when I do this understanding media class, it's mm -hmm. 30, 36 three hour classes. OK, <laughs> <laughs> That's a while. That's a minute. No. And the, the funny the funny thing is is it started um it started on Twitter. And mm -hmm. I actually I actually love Twitter. Twitter's a lot of fun mm -hmm. um, for me as a word person. Mm -hmm. Um it's kind of my gym, you know, where I go to exercise and right. throw things out. Um but you know, as I was reading every once in a while I get a little stuck up about academia and whatever. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, somebody was telling me how they cover understanding media as part of their intro to communications class, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in in one class. Right. And I said, in one class, I mean, if you wanted to really do this book, you'd need a semester at least. Sure. And they're like, well, you should do that. Right. <laughs> Twitter being Twitter. It's like, OK, mm -hmm. all your your bullshit. And I said, oh, oh. Hmm. That's, Let's do it. that's interesting. Yeah. So I, I threw the challenge back and I said, okay, I'll tell you what, um, I'll, I'll work up a curriculum. Uh, and if, if 10 people actually sign up, I'll do the course. Mm -hmm. And I designed a curriculum because, you know, understanding media, um, I was taught by my father is it's two parts. Mm -hmm. They're literally the table of contents, part one, part two. Mm-hmm. Part one is uh, seven chapters, um, which not coincident, not uncoincidentally relates to the trivium and quadrivium. Mm -hmm. And um, they are tools. They're ways of approaching technology. Mm -hmm. And then part two is 33 chapters, uh, sorry, 26 chapters mm -hmm. corresponding to the you know letters of the alphabet. Um, and it's taking those tools from part one and looking at specific technologies. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so I said, well, you know, my focus here at the McLuhan Institute is not on theory, but on um, what's useful. That's what I strive to do is pull out the parts from McLuhan work that are useful to people today and going forward and make those available. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll design a, a small course doing part one of the book. I mm -hmm. figured out, um, if 10 people sign up and I ended up having 30 plus people oh, wow. in the course. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it went so well that um, they basically badgered me and we ended up doing the whole book. Okay. So the yeah. first, you originally created a curriculum on the first part. Yeah. And then everybody's like, no, you got to keep going. And then you, yeah, continue. right. Yeah. And, and we did the whole thing. And now I'm halfway through doing it a second time around. Okay. But, but um, what I do in that course is I design the first two classes, uh, two or three classes, um, just giving background. Mm -hmm. uh, to equip people with an understanding of who Marshall McLuhan was, mm -hmm. uh, English teacher, how he got into media studies, um, and how he came to write this book, which was originally um, commissioned as a report by the NAEB, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, as a high school curriculum for understanding media. Mm -hmm. uh, and he rewrote it into a different form and published it um, as that. But um, what I... I think the 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 biggest piece of advice I give people who want to read that book is to approach it not like you're reading a textbook, not even like you're reading a novel, but as if you're reading a book of poetry. Mm -hmm. Because it is so dense. Marshall wrote it and and rewrote it and rewrote it over several years before mm -hmm. he published it. Mm -hmm. And every time he rewrote it, he was refining it just like a poem. And pulling out, you know, connections and useless stuff and making it more poetic, more resonant mm -hmm. um, to, you know, to demand that you put more work in to create completing that circuit of understanding into your own life. Um, and it's a wild book because even though I've read it several times now and I've taught it once through all the way halfway through teaching it the second time, it's the book that keeps on giving. Right. Uh, it's incredible how rich and useful it is every time um, you approach it, even just a year later. It's kind of right. kind of wild. Yeah. Now, there's just so many. It's just a different like, I don't want to say lateral thinking, but, you know, just the way that uh, he takes a thought and a perspective and the theory and get and then applies it to all of these different aspects of technology redefines technology you know uh tip you know uh different than what our typical understanding is you know when you say technology everybody thinks of like a silicon chip or computers or something like that but it was really revelatory, I would say, you know, your your eyes are open to like, it's like being open to a different reality, a different world. And, you know, I think that's one of the um, main hallmarks of his work and yeah. even one of the main contributions of him to the study of technology is just the broadening of this category of what mm -hmm. it is or could be considered. Um, and it was it was really laws of media that broke that open to its widest. Mm -hmm when he and my father um, define media as any human innovation, anything anything that man thinks or makes or does 
you know, mm-hmm. is, a, is a technology, any mm-hmm. or utterance, you know, which is, um, you know, to most people who, who think about technology as something you plug in, right? this is different, but it's also so, so helpful because, um, you know, the other thing, the other main hallmark of his work is just looking at the structure and form of technology rather than the content. Mm-hmm. And when you take it out of strictly communications media, it becomes easier to do that because, um, of course, um, you know, you'll obsess over content if you're look, trying to look at film or social media or anything else, because, you know, that's what's front and center. Right. But um, think about some other kind of human innovation that doesn't have so obvious a content. Like think about um, clothing, mm-hmm. you know, or think about air conditioners. Mm-hmm. You know, think about the world that that makes possible the effect on people and society um because the content doesn't get in the way so it allows you to see the structure and the form a lot more easily right yeah yeah the uh i think i don't know if i read it from but like just the idea that language itself is a medium it's a technology it's you know, it's something that limits. I remember watching, and I've said this a couple of times. I don't know if it was in a previous podcast or something. I remember watching a video. It was a TED talk by a gentleman who grew up. Uh, Viet. His parents and grandparents were Vietnamese, I believe, and he grew up. They moved uh, to America, so he grew up in America, and. I think it was during the Vietnam War, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, he talks about the difference in language uh, that the subjunctive tense in English allowed him to think things that his parents and grandparents couldn't think because they just didn't have the tense. So when you grew up with a, you know speaking Vietnamese with no subjunctive tense, and like the story that he gives was um, when they were leaving. Vietnam, they were getting ready to get on this bus. The whole family was standing there waiting to get on a bus. And as they were getting ready to get on the bus, something prevented them from getting on. The baby started crying or something like that. So they had to stop. The bus left. And as it got down the street, it exploded. And they got on the next bus and then they got out and they ended up moving to America or whatever. And he he said in the TED talk, dad, he was talking to his dad. He said, dad, he, he was thinking, dad, what would have happened if we had gotten on that bus? And like, that was a thought his father never had. Right. Couldn't even think that thought. There was no provision in his mind to even go in that direction because the language that he grew up, that native language did not provide the tense, the structure for him to begin to think that way. So it just is super interesting when you apply that across things like clothing, like air conditioners, like vehicles and, and and the wheel and all of those things it just really opens up a different perspective and kind of gives you a thought on what's really going on today you know we're here talking on a on a zoom call but now we've got these other forms that are doing the same thing without us really being aware of it or being knowledgeable of it <laughs> mind blown right yeah you know so, i actually i think about again coming back to you know people's conception that technology is something you plug in mm-hmm. and i like i 
I'm constantly amazed at just human language and in particular spoken language. Well, especially as a poet, right? <laughs> Not so unusual maybe, but right. <laughs> but it it really it does blow my mind that um you know, I can think up something in my head and I can turn that into words, right? And then I can I can force these out of my mouth on these like sound waves on, mm -hmm. on my breath. And they can, you know, let's pretend that you were here. But even though you're not here, they can go through like the microphone here through your speaker and, and are pushed out and reach your ears. And then your ear decodes them into more signals that make sense and then put the same ideas in your, like, how does... How can how does you, that happen? How can you get out of bed in the morning when this sort of thing is happening? Like it's yeah. like what? And we take it for granted. Take it for granted. The crazy thing. And this is mm. why I mean that's kind of case in point to where we're at, technologically speaking, is that we we take it for granted. And mm -hmm. we have to. We have to necessarily, because again, we couldn't get out of bed in the morning unless we took a lot for granted mm -hmm. the breath that we take in you know yeah uh, now the breaths we take our heartbeats my hair my fingernails are growing right now yeah you know? it's like all these things have to happen in the background because we have to get shit done on the daily yeah and if we didn't take them for granted we wouldn't be able to get anything done mm -hmm. or, it's, or it's like in a big city you know where people might complain that everybody's so impersonal and you know, in small town, I live in small towns and, mm -hmm. you know, it's different because you say hi to people on the street. And it's like, okay, but that's because there's 400 people around, you mm -hmm. know, if there were 4 million people around, I wouldn't be stopping people and saying hi on the street because I got to get somewhere. Yeah. You know? It's so, these are, it, there's reasons why they do these things, but um, there's trade-offs as well. Yeah. I think it's always been fascinating to me uh, your your point about communication, number one, is I, I have often said it's a miracle that we're able to even communicate at all. When you think about what exactly is going on, it is a miraculous event that's happening every time you open your mouth and every time you speak a word to someone else. The fact that they can actually that you can communicate thoughts through this moving of sound waves and everything like that is amazing. And, and then at What's that? No Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, it's or it's all organic. It's which is all yeah, it's thing. amazing. It's amazing. And then on top of it, you know, there's first of all that level that it's able to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Then there's the next level up, which is uh that we're we're unaware of it, mm -hmm. that we don't even think about it. And all of the things, it's fascinating to me that. Our brain just does on autopilot connected to our different environments or contexts, right? You made reference to that, like in the context of New York City, you just can't stop and say, and when there's millions of people, your brain just does it. It just knows to do it and you don't do it. Whereas when you're in a different environment, now all of a sudden you're compelled in a sense to say hi to the one person that's coming by you or to make an acknowledgement of that. And that that just happens without our awareness. And all of the things that you mentioned, 
you know, I often think of uh, just for example, the pressure I'm standing, right? There's mm -hmm. a pressure on my feet, you know, between the feet and the ground that gravity is constantly putting upon me. There's a sensation which I'm unaware of. And I will move back and forth. My my brain does it. My body moves to alleviate the uncomfort, discomfort, if you will, all completely on autopilot without my awareness of it. And so, you know, I think what your grandfather brought was just a opening of the curtain into this world of the reality, if you want to say it that way, that we're just unaware of. You know, um, if if I were in a, were I in a senior position in the MEA, mm -hmm. I would consider handing out an award, let's say, at the MEA awards this year mm -hmm. to someone like Jerry Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because, <laughs> and this might be a funny thing to do, right. uh, consider it, but, right. uh, and I'll come down and present it, uh, He's always got to be in LA, but anyway, um, no, no, he spends time in, anyway, mm -hmm. I digress. The point being, um, I think, I think my grandfather would have loved Jerry Seinfeld mm -hmm. and, and stand up comedy in general, mm -hmm. which was just sort of becoming a thing, um, in his time. Uh, it's come a lot further since mm -hmm. but Jerry Seinfeld made a career off noticing things, right? You know? That's his whole shtick is yep. you ever notice how, you know, people do this or you ever notice how people do that. What's um, the deal with whatever? Right. That's that's right. media ecology. That's, um, you know, the artist as anti-environment mm -hmm. um, This person pointing at these very things that we take for granted, mm -hmm. which are funny. And this is all all our major discoveries take place by just people noticing something and say, huh, that's weird. Yeah. Why you is know, that? Exactly. And right. that curiosity. Um, and that was that was kind of what what Marshall did a lot of times is mm -hmm. made a point of noticing things that other didn't other people weren't noticing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And he had the thing is, like, it seems it seems like magic to us, but it's more like sleight of hand. Right. You know? Because no, it, you, good, great, great analogy. Yeah, because he actually worked very, very hard to sharpen his perceptive faculties right. just so that he could notice things. Back to your uh, your anecdote about the person um, who learned English uh, at, from Vietnamese is that um, Marshall studied multiple languages mm -hmm. every day. He had mm -hmm. a, he had a collection of Bibles that he picked mm -hmm. up in hotel rooms around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and he would read his Bible in the morning in half mm -hmm. a dozen languages mm -hmm. just so that he could break out of the English language mm -hmm. mindset mm -hmm. uh, and have wider perspective. Mm -hmm. And that was um, also, so he paid attention to language um, and slang in particular mm -hmm. because um, precisely the function of language is to mediate between perceptions and ideas in mm -hmm. between, right? And you, we come up with words to describe situations or things. Um, and when we encounter a new situation that we don't have a word for, we come up with a new word for it. Mm -hmm. Or we simply alter or change the usage of conventional words. Mm -hmm. And those changes 
um, if you you can work them backwards, right? And if you notice that language is shifting, if there are terms that are becoming popular or unpopular or used mm -hmm. in different ways, there's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. It's not just because we're sitting around and oh, wouldn't it be funny if we, you know, just started talking differently. There's right. societal and technological pressures that are resulting in these shifts of language and culture. Mm -hmm. And what Marshall did, being the the consummate weird grammarian he was, was he read this stuff and followed it backwards from the effect to the cause. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just super interesting. Um, I do remember hearing somebody, it was kind of like an eye-opening experience for me when somebody said, oh, German is really a better philosophical language than, you know, why were all the great philosophers German? You know, why was there a period of time when there was this, and it, somebody made the point that it had reference back to the language, that the German language allowed, to your point, the creation of words and the, you know, uh, to put words together that were not words to, in order to be able to mean something different and to explore a, a philosophical perspective or a thought. So, yeah, I mean, it's a great, great, great thought. And, um, you know, again, it only happens when your attention is drawn to it, which is, I think, where we need you know, my own personal perspective is the idea of critical thinking. You know, it's that sharpening of your mental faculties, like you talked about. How do we train ourselves to not be locked into the areas that our technologies are forcing us into, be it computers or phones or language or whatever it may be? Um, how can you get out of that to be able to explore the world, explore the reality in a different way. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the trick. Um, the first thing is to recognize that you can or might want to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> might want to. That's probably a great point because not everybody does. No. It, you know, like um, we're we're doing okay over here. What's, what's the big deal? Right. <laughs> but um, I think... If you start to to question people about it, they might realize that they're not really doing so mm -hmm. okay around here, and and might want to look a bit further. Mm -hmm. um, I've been I've been working on this this thing kind of recently called Maelstrom Escape Strategies, mm -hmm. which um, you know one of one of the things one of Marshall's uh, resorts was to this short story by Edgar Allan Poe, A Descent into the Maelstrom. Mm -hmm. You know the one I mean? I don't. Okay. Um, it shows up in his work as early as with in The Mechanical Bride in 1950. Okay. Um, and, you know, not a year goes by. I'm sure he doesn't talk about it in one way or another. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a short story by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, funnily enough, um, there was a movie made in 2003 called McLuhan's Wake, mm -hmm. um, which focused a lot on laws of media mm -hmm. uh, and I was hired for that film to play Marshall McLuhan as a young man oh nice and yeah which was pretty it was actually a lot of fun mm -hmm. um, and uh, for that film they did a reenactment or a retelling of Descent into the Maelstrom and mm -hmm. it's like 
kind of over animated, but I play the sailor in it, which is mm -hmm. also fun. And my dad narrates it. And there's a clip of Marshall that starts it off. So it's like mm -hmm. three generations in one, which is neat. But um nice. long uh, short story shorter, um in the in Poe's story, um, it takes place in the North Atlantic, right? And mm -hmm. the narrator is the sailor who survived this ordeal. And he and his brothers were fishermen. And where they live, there's this giant maelstrom in the ocean, this huge whirlpool, right? Mm -hmm. And it's no everybody knows about it. Um, you stay away from it, and you're mm -hmm. okay. But the the thing is, like the best fishing grounds are on the other side of it, right? And you of can, of course, of course. And this is a story, mind you. Mm -hmm. You can get like a week's worth of fishing done in a day if mm -hmm. you time things right in. And if you time things right, you can actually get around it mm -hmm. at, at twice a day, you know, at the mm -hmm. low tide and the high tide. Right, right. Um, so these guys, you know, seduced by uh, the promise of a good haul, uh, this is what they were doing. Only one day um, they stayed too long and inevitably they get sucked in. Mm -hmm. Well, they get sucked in and one brother is pulled overboard immediately. Um, another brother like okay so picture this giant maelstrom in the ocean mm -hmm. all sorts of objects in it loud like you can't even think right just apocalypse happening right mm -hmm. you're in the middle of it and the other bro brother loses his mind he's like babbling he's senseless but the narrator of the story um, he says you know he was of a particular turn of mind and once the initial terror wore off he found himself studying his surrounding and looking around because, you know, it's a giant vortex. It's right. taking forever to get down this thing, mm -hmm. getting bored, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Which is funny. But anyway, yeah. um, you know, Marshall had this phrase he also employed that um, when when we have information overload, we tend to look for pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And this is this is what the sailor ends up doing. And he notices that certain objects, instead of going down, 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 are actually going up, up, up. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. And he notices they have certain things in common, and he realizes, well, I've got this trunk here, and maybe if I strap myself to it and I time things right, maybe I can get sucked out too. Mm -hmm. And that is actually what happens. And mm -hmm. he jumps out, and a minute later, he watches the ship go over the precipice and mm -hmm. down low and... Um, he gets sucked out and pulled up on shore. But Marshall used this as an example um, of our technological circumstance. Mm -hmm. that, um, by paying attention to the forces we're involved in, we might also make some escape. Mm -hmm. Right. So Marshall used this metaphor throughout his, throughout his career. Mm -hmm. uh, and being interested, as I said, in practical things, um, not so much theory, but, you know, theory is great and all, but, you know, we're in the middle of this vortex and it's, I'm not sure theory is going to get us out of it. Right. So my, my question was, okay, well, let's take this literally for a moment, being literature. Um, what, how can we escape our vortex? Mm -hmm. so I, just, I came up with this idea of maelstrom escape strategies mm -hmm. um, and I've been thinking about it and thinking about it. And I've come up with several. Um, and 
you know, part of it came to me last summer when uh, we took a, a drive. We packed the family in the minivan and drove out to the West Coast from mm-hmm. here to the ocean, Pacific Ocean, through the Rockies and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and driving eight to 12 hours a day, um, I didn't have much time to check my notifications, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, I didn't have any time at all. Um, so the easiest way to escape today's technological vortex is just to, you know, check out onto some island or something or a cabin in the woods for a month and break the habit. Mm-hmm. But how practical is that? Right. You know, it's there are not many people who can just who check can do it. that. Right. So so ultimately to me that's useless. I mean, it sounds like a great thing, but um, what about the other ninety nine percent of people? Ninety nine percent. Mm-hmm percent of people on the earth you know that's mm-hmm. not really an option we all have to live with these things so so then i got to thinking about other things and and one of them actually this is a fun thing i like to do i, I ran an experiment um a lot of the problems that we seem to have these days come from anxiety you know right. and a lot of that anxiety comes from speed it's this this overload you know, and we can't deal with it. So we just shut down or turn into mm-hmm. a wreck or whatever else. Well, so how do we slow down the vortex? You know, mm-hmm. is I think a critical question. And I found a couple of ways um, and it's things that anybody can do. Um, and for example, um, I can type uh, about 80 words a minute mm-hmm. pretty accurately. 80, right. 80 um, I can write by hand about 40 mm-hmm. and I've clocked both and that's pretty accurate. And the thing is um, when you, when you write by hand, when you write that much more slowly, um, if if you want to write a page or write a complete thought, a complete sentence, your mind has to slow down. Mm-hmm. To Otherwise you would just be writing gibberish, mm-hmm. right? So what I say to people is, and, you know, you can be a single parent working two jobs, exhausted at the end of the night. You can find 15 minutes to write by hand. Right. You can do it. I, you know, mm-hmm. I know you don't want to, <laughs> you know, you want to Netflix and chill or or just go to sleep. Like I get right. got kids, but um this this pays dividend and i've had people do it and report back and if you write a page um you know write a letter to a friend to your mom she'd love to hear from you just look out your window and describe what you're seeing look around your apartment write things fill a page and if you can do this um more nights a week than not for a month you're going to notice a difference i Uh guarantee guarantee it Uh same with same with reading um, your eye follows text on a screen um, at a much more rapid pace than it does on paper. Mm-hmm. Reading on paper slows, and, and on the screen, you tend to skim and skip bits. Right, right. When you read on a page, you tend to focus more because your eye has to slow down to register the characters more. Um, so this is another little hack. Spend 15 minutes reading. I don't care. It doesn't even, you know, the medium is the message. It doesn't matter what you're reading. It doesn't matter what you're writing. Read and write. And these things, not because I'm precious over their the forms, although I am because I love writing and reading, but they have they have cognitive benefits. 
Right. And if you want to slow down your, your personal maelstrom, um, there are ways you can do it. And so um, this is what I'm looking for. And what I urge for people to do is find ways to slow things down a little bit. Yeah. Because this is where, this is where quality happens. You right. Know? Um, I, I think our, our richer experiences in our day-to-day -day life are the ones that take a little bit of time, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like walking somewhere instead of driving mm -hmm. or taking the right. bus. Um, when you, when you drive or take the bus, um, you see things go by, um, but you don't have the same sensory experience as you do when you're walking. Right. You drive by the bakery. Maybe it looks nice, but if you walk by, you smell it. Yeah. And, Oh boy, is that a different experience? Mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. for, for me in a small town, if um if I if I take a walk, I'm bound to run into people I know. And because we all live together and you don't want to be rude, you stop and you say hi. Um, and it's amazing how much a simple interaction like that will go toward helping you feel human. Yeah. I I think that is so there's uh old old uh religious disciplines of solitude of silence of and i think your point is super great how do you structure your environment to reduce the speed right how do you and what are we typically doing we're typically adopting those values of technology speed efficiency progress how can I do it faster? How can I do it more efficient? How can, you know, and I, I was going to ask you about like your thoughts, which I think you just shared on content churn and constantly having to push content out in the mediated age that we're in. And the point that you make is what in the world are we losing of ourselves by continually jumping into that maelstrom and how do we find deliberate practices to get ourselves out? Uh, we I just was having a discussion with our guidance counselor here on the the challenges that our students are facing when it comes to anxiety. You know, they're anxious. Yeah. Students are anxious and they're having breakdowns, and it's kind of like, you know, how what do we do? And 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 I meant I made mention to her. I said, you know, kids grew up. In World War II, where their parent dad was sent off to war or Vietnam or name the era of our culture or society or history when there wasn't tragedy and, you know, having to deal with trauma. And, you know, we didn't have the tools that back then that we have now. And so it's just an interesting thought about the speed aspect of it. And maybe it's not the trauma of whatever the whatever the trauma du jour is at the time you know maybe it's the speed maybe it's the technologies that are pushing us in that direction how do we find ways to i thought it was a great great thought there so are, are you writing well, a book on that um yeah i've i've written a piece i'm trying to yeah. find the right or any place really to publish it mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, I've given a few talks on it, um, this idea of maelstrom escape strategies. Yeah. And because I think 
uh, I think the greatest thing we can do is try and help people find these coping mechanisms. Right. This is this is this is I think the essence of of the difficulty. Um, you know, another another frequent McLuhan resort was this quote of Bertrand Russell. And he said, uh, if they only raised the temperature of the bathwater by a degree every hour, we wouldn't know when to scream. Right. Right. Um, when when things happen slowly, you have time to adjust. Mm -hmm. When they happen too quickly, you only have time to react. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have time to adjust. And there's a mixed blessing there. Um, the benefit being that we notice it. <laughs> you right. know. Uh, and we can do something about it. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily easy. In fact, it's not going to be easy. But, um, you know, another thing Marshall said a lot was of the nature of um, there is no ev inevitability as long as we're willing to contemplate the situation. Right. You know, people call him a technological determinist. Mm -hmm. But he insisted over and over and over that, look, we're the architects of these things. Mm -hmm. And we can easily just as easily if we put our minds to it architect ourselves out of them these situations you know and That's so if, if if we want to if we want to and if this is this is the this is a big thing is we have to there has to be that will um and it's not going to come from the top down mm -mm. uh self-regulation when it comes to technology is like uh, you know, I gave a talk a couple of years ago. I had the wonderful invitation from um, a law faculty at the University of Windsor, Ontario mm -hmm. um, to give a talk. And it, to me, this was a, a great opportunity to talk about the law and technology. Um, it's a great opportunity to, to look into the subject a bit more. And I decided to look at the creation of the FDA um, in the US in the early 20th century. Um, because there was a time when the pharmaceutical and the food industries were unregulated mm -hmm. uh, completely. Uh, but what happened was people actually got sick from tainted uh, tinned meat um, and demanded politicians do something about it. And they created the uh, Food and Drug Safety Act, which um, famously stated that uh, things had to be safe and effective. Mm -hmm. this, this was the big criteria still in force today. And so a drug company today can't just throw out any new drug. They have to make sure it's safe and effective, mm -hmm. that um, it's going to be safe for human com consumption. And it has to be, it has to do what it says it's going to do. Mm -hmm. Right. But, um, you know, you watch, you watch a commercial for, for a new drug and you see this, this couple or whatever, enjoying a great sunny day and they're wandering through the heather and in the background, there's some guy talking rapid fire about all the, mm -hmm. things all the side effects, you, right? Right. <laughs> um, but uh, right. the difficulty when it comes to technology is what does safe and effective mean? Right. This is content, you know, mm -hmm. and it doesn't get at the environment. It doesn't mm -hmm. get at the personal and social consequences of technologies. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't have, we barely have the apparatus for recognizing that, much less talking about it. And that's why all these Senate hearings and all the rest of it drive me kind of crazy because they're not asking the right questions. They don't know the right questions to ask. They've right. never, 
they've never heard of this stuff and they mm-hmm. if if they want to do anything meaningful at all except posturing and whatever they need to because it's not about batteries frying our brains it's about technology changing our brains right. fundamentally and who we are and our preferences and how we you know look at the discussion we should be having about zoom is how has it reorganized society in the last two years? And is that part of the Senate hearings? No. Mm-hmm. And the discussion about open AI, same thing. Are is it talking about that? No, it's talking about kids, you know, writing essays or not writing essays. Cheating on their stuff, yeah. And that's There's, totally the wrong thing to be looking it's at. It's the wrong, it's the wrong questions, it's the wrong discussion. And you know, that to you to your point, that was that's my contention that the mea can speak into that like if there's anybody that could speak into that it should be us i there was a paper that i read that was called the stewardship of global collective behavior and they have said that for the first time uh these a collection of scientists actual scientists have said uh, we argue that the study of collective behavior must rise to a crisis discipline. And when they talk about collective behavior, it's the digital age, the high fidelity information, the changes to our social systems, uh, the poorly understood functional consequences of the technologies that we're using. They say it must rise to a crisis discipline just as medicine, conservation, and climate science have with a focus on providing actionable insight to policymakers and regulators. Because there's the regulation has nothing to do with the medium itself. In fact, the medium, they're embraced. They are embraced as look at look at, you know, the shine, it's the shiny toy over here that's taking your attention away from what's what is really happening. You know, we were just talking literally you know, half hour ago, uh, hour ago, what are our kids? What's happening to them growing up in this environment? Like what's being changed? We don't know. They're just now, you know, starting to go through it and we don't have any idea. And the focus on content, you know, like, oh, let's ban these types of things, you know, let's stop this content. Let's whatever it may be, rather than what's going on with the actual environments themselves. This is this is why this book, Understand Media, is this gift that keeps on giving. Right. You know, because Marshall addressed these problems in 1964 in this book. He said, uh-huh. I'm in the position of Louis Pasteur, trying to tell everybody that their greatest enemy is unseen by them. Right. right? When Louis Pasteur was studying bacteria and saying, you know, doc, you should probably wash your hands before you do that surgery. Mm-hmm. They're like, what are you talking about? There's nothing wrong. But, you know, that's because bacteria are microscopic. Right. You know, can't see it. It doesn't exist. Right. And it's the, same, it's the same problem with technology is the content distracts us. The other thing he says in there, he paraphrases T.S. Eliot. You know, Eliot says content uh, you know, meaning in a poem, Marshall paraphrase, he says, content is the juicy piece of meat used mm-hmm. by the burglar uh, to distract the watchdog of the mind. Right. And it's it's as if you were telling Pfizer, hey, go ahead, 
release that drug. We're going to study it later. You know, right. it's like, well, that's, uh, we should probably think of doing it the other way around. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty, the difficulty is that um, there's no way Apple or Microsoft or anybody or OpenAI or anybody else is going to say, hey, why don't we delay the release of ChatGPT uh, for a couple of years so we can do some human trials and, you know, see what the effect, think about what the effect of this might be. Right. Um, why would they do that? They have no incentive. But Pfizer, Bayer, any of those people, you can imagine when the FDA was coming around, they said, this is going to kill our business. You know, we're going to be not be able to function. Look, these places are not having a problem with their profits. You know right. what I mean? For um, sure. Well, they, that, that's your point. They have every incentive to get it out as fast as possible. Yeah. They have every incentive to do it. Yeah. The entire market structure is based on getting it out, getting your company going public, providing for the shareholders, you know, and so there is, I, you know, it's, it's, it's been what, almost 60 years, right? That we've yeah. had the book and having had that for 60 years, over a half a century to see that there has been no serious reflection back and yet now here we are it's uh, you know to say to speak of technological determinism i would not say i'm a technological but determinist in the sense but it almost seems like there's no stopping this thing on a mass scale your point about getting out of the vortex getting out of the maelstrom on the individual level almost seems like the the way that that it can that it can be stopped for us and individuals because i just don't see regulators coming in you know what are they regulating they're regulating content yeah right they're regulating content you look at the study that came out from instagram and what it's doing to teenage girls and you know the constant depression and anxiety that they're living in because of what the you know so what does instagram do oh facebook do or meta Oh, we got, you know, we'll stop pushing those pictures in the algorithm. They're not talking about the product. They're not talking about the platform or any of that. But you know what? Um, I have a bit of hope because at least we're recognizing that something is very, very wrong. Right. Even if we're not getting quite to the heart of the matter, um, it's it's as if these doctors are saying, you know, Pastor, you might be on to something. Um, but they aren't quite all the way there yet. But right. but hey, the fact that we're part of the way there, the fact that we're dipping our toes in this boiling water and realizing, hey, something doesn't feel so good, right. is a good step. You know, you said 60 years. Marshall first said the medium is the message in 1958, believe it or not. Okay. And when he said that, um, people were like, what do you, t- you're, what do you mean? The message right. is the message. What are you talking about? And even for decades after, people were like, you're crazy, you know, what are you talking about? But part of the reason I have hope today is I I get invited to guest lecture and explain to a class the medium is the message. And I I have a, you know, compilation of all the different times Marshall has said it over the years, uh, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I start to read them a few quotes and they get it. And not only do they get it, 
but once they get it, they're like, well, yeah, obviously mm-hmm. medium is a message. Of course that makes right. sense. And that to me is progress. And mm. in the MEA, you know, we talk about the environment as a shaping factor um, and formal cause. Well, I think we're coming to a place where societally our environment is in such a place where we can talk about the medium as a message for a few minutes and say, Hey, yeah, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that to me says we're getting closer to a place where we can talk about more meaningful changes. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great to hear you say that. Um, I'm not as hopeful as you are. <laughs> be honest, hey, listen, we have to be hopeful because we have to be hopeful. We've got to be positive. And I think, um, I don't have a lot of trust in politicians implementing policy, uh, but I do have a lot of faith in people yeah. um, that can recognize and get educated and then take positive steps for themselves and for their children. And so I hope you come out with that, you know, escapes from the maelstrom or whatever it is. You know, I think that's a really, and I will tell you that that is something that schools across across the nation would implement and would bring, you know, we, we were, ha- like I said, we said it three times, we're having the discussion on giving our students um, strategies, you know, yep. how, do, how do we get them the actual strategies and help them to, you know, on one side, the medium is the message in the sense that is, but how can you reverse engineer that and create a medium that, that, that has the positive impact on your thought with the positive outcomes the thing is i think we have everything that we need right we don't need a new technological solution to a new technological problem um and the answer isn't also just smashing the machines either i don't think that's um you know marshall said in i can't remember the article he said um you know diagnosis before prescription Mm mm-hmm and the thing is, and um, what I try to do with my my work on the Maelstrom Escape Strategies is, you know your life best. Mm-hmm. You know where you might be able to carve out little bits of time. Um, you know, there's there's probably somewhere you're taking a shortcut where you don't need to, and mm-hmm. you, can, you can improve quality by taking a little more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it Speed isn't in and of itself a virtue necessarily Mm -hmm. um speed is really a lot of what got us into this mess um you know the breakdown of the maelstrom escape strategies is i figured out that it's it's three things okay so uh so you're in a vortex now what Mm -hmm. well the first thing you've got to do is survive Mm -hmm. it's like you got to find a pdf you got to find a pfd Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah right something to grab onto, right? Yeah, not a PDF. Right? <laughs> Maybe not. You have to find <laughs> something to to hold on to to if you're drowning, you know, you got to get above water, catch your breath. So survival is the first thing. Catch oh. your breath. Um then once you've survived, as the sailor said, you know, once that initial terror we- wears off, um you got to you got to think about escaping. How do you escape? how do you get out? So what are what are little ways you can um, make improvements, small improvements in your life that'll add up to big things. Cause they mm-hmm. will, they really mm-hmm. will. Over time. Um, it's not futile mm-hmm. and little, you know, little improvements go a long way. 
So survive, escape. And then third, avoid. Um, you know, now that you've gotten out of the vortex, maybe don't jump headfirst into the next one. Right. Just a thought. We know yeah. we know better. We really, really do. <laughs> no, you know, we know not to smoke crack. Um, we know we know that getting a new iPhone or whatever is going to be awesome and shiny and bells and whistles. We also know it's going to take over our lives. Right. You know? We we fool ourselves into thinking otherwise, but I think deep down everybody does know. Deep down, so, they do. I think deep down. You know, and I, you know what, kids these days, um, I think are a lot smarter about this stuff than we are. Really, mm-hmm. I know Facebook is not a young person's game. <laughs> you, know, you know, like they're doing other things. They're they're being smarter, I think, about how, but they don't have. They don't know, like, I think they're doing these things almost instinctively. And if they just understood a little bit more, if they were able, the problem is that we can't see this vortex that we're in. It's invisible, right? you know, it's environmental. Mm-hmm. And we only started thinking about our natural environment and the, the shit show that that is part of my French, because mm-hmm. it was impossible to not notice anymore. Right. You know? It's obvious that things are messed up. Well, it's less obvious how things are messed up technologically because it happens beneath our notice. Right. We feel the effect, but understanding the cause is a different mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah. I, th- I think we need to, and this is why I, I don't I don't talk down about media literacy. It's really important, but um, it almost always has to do with content. Mm-hmm. You know? understanding that um, there are people who want to influence you for ideological or commercial reasons. Mm -hmm. And that's important, but again, it doesn't get at the form. And, and that's a thing. I think we could add 10% of media ecology McLuhan or otherwise into media literacy, make it a lot more robust and meaningful for for people. Mm -hmm. Mm Great. Well, hey, I don't want to take up too much of your time. You've been super generous and uh, I appreciate you coming on. Maybe if you could tell where some listeners, if they wanted to reach you or tell, talk a little bit about the McLuhan Institute and your course, if somebody's interested in that. Sure. Um, the McLuhanInstitute.com has links to everything, I think, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very basic website, but uh, the Twitter, the McLuhan Institute is on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, lots of great stuff over those platforms um i even have a patreon page mm-hmm. uh, which it'd be great if it paid the bills a bit more <laughs> um, they don't they take too much out right no but hey if you're if you're a teacher um i'd love to to teach a class if you're a student i do group one-on-one stuff if you're the president of the united states i'd love to talk with you uh not it, probably well <laughs> yeah I, let's hope right? let's let's hope i think yeah yeah reach I'm out and you are on twitter as well correct yeah so i'm on twitter as the McLuhan institute but also as as myself which is where i do i say more yeah. risky i guess you're a little bit so uh yeah so simple. i I will look to be following you. Is this you, A-M-I-C-U-S-A-D-A-S-T-R-A? Amicus ad Astra. That is me. Okay. 
So there we go. I look forward to hearing from you in the future. And uh, I appreciate again your time today. I thought it was super, super beneficial, super helpful and super insightful. So thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. Take care. Take care, Andrew. Thank you. All right. Talk later. Bye now. All right. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Andrew McLuhan, the director of the McLuhan Institute. Just super fascinating. Uh, Something I love to talk about, the connections between media, technology, and human consciousness. Um, Some of the things that I thought were important there, we talked about how we address the question of technology, strategies uh, to cope with the speed of technology, and especially some of the things that Andrew shared about maelstrom escape strategies. Super beneficial and helpful for you. Thanks for listening. The show notes for this podcast will be at mindforlife.org forward slash 071. This is our 71st podcast episode. We also have some free resources available that you can find there. A cheat sheet on how to start a difficult conversation. Also, an assessment for you on the 52 essential skills for success in business and life. So I encourage you to check that out. And again, thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and a review or on whatever platform that you're listening to it. Appreciate that. And I appreciate you tuning in today. Have a great week. (laughs) 